and welcome to another episode of the Turn Up For What podcast talking your Houston Texans straight from the Great British Isles. A happy belated 4th of July to everybody. Um, but we're joined by somebody this week as we continue our deep dive into the rookie class. Somebody that knows college football, Aggies football and of course Texans football making his second appearance on the show, Mr. Cole Thompson. Cole, how you doing? Doing good, man. Uh, it's been a busy month and it's going to be a busy even more month because of uh, with uh, college football realignment and then of course with the training camp coming up. But it's always going to be able to talk Texans and it's always good to be able to talk rookies and their immediate impact on an organization that isn't rebuilding, according to Nick Casario, but rather retooling into phase two of the process. Well, that, yeah, that's it, I think. And it's, um, it's yeah, there seems a lot going on um, in terms of the off season generally, um, as you say, Nick, I mean, nobody likes to use the word rebuild because it's. It uh, it's it has negative or, or as we're just talking about, oh, but yeah. con- connotations that people don't negative like connotation that people just seem to freak out about when you know other people <laughs> are like, no, we're rebuilding. Now he's like, no, we're retooling for phase two. No, you're rebuilding. Yeah. Just I don't, just don't. It's the same meaning. It's just synonym. That's it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, ultimately, we need more talent. I think that's that's not in question. But um, how do you kind of view the the off season in terms of? In terms of where things have kind of got to, and how do you uh, how do you view the kind of uh, process that this this uh, club's been in so far this off season? Because there's a hell of a lot at hand. I think the biggest thing is that there's a new kind of found hope and a little bit more of a contingency this year. You know, a lot of the players that they brought back, they wanted to return to Houston. They wanted to be a part of the organization. A lot of the names that they were targeting were players that they thought were going to be a part of the second phase and really just veterans who could teach the young core players. There's only about two major moves that I think will be traditionally impactful this year. Steven Nelson at the opposite cornerback of a Derek Stingley Jr. is a massive move because if he has played in a zone heavy formation before with both the Steelers and with the Kansas City Chiefs. So it is a natural fit for the style of defense that Lovey Smith wants to run and they need to upgrade at the boundary cornerback position. They were one of the worst last year when it came to boundary corners, cornerback uh, play. That, you know, nickel defender Desmond King had to play on the outside because of at times he was the best overall boundary defender. So that's an upgrade. And then I think the addition of Marlon Mack, you know, he has shown in the past his ability and power to work up the middle of the field and get those hard yards. He's averaged about 4.6 yards per rush attempt in his two breakout years with the Indianapolis Colts. And this is an organization that finished last year dead last in rushing and a franchise worst 3.4 yards per attempt. So anybody that they can bring in in the run game is definitely going to be worth at least a conversation starter. But the reality is, is that they finally move off to Sean Watson, who's dealing with his own legal trouble still with the Cleveland Browns. They get six overall draft picks, including three future first round picks, one in 2022, one in 2023, one in 2024, plus those extra mid round selections. So not having that black cloud and questions and concerns of if Watson will return, what's the value for him on the market, who's interested in adding him, when they can move off of him. Now that that's done, Nick Casario can finally actually take this team and put it in the right direction without any negative connotations surrounding the organization of Watson's legal troubles and that major question being asked, which is a good thing. But they're still a long ways away. I don't think anybody out there is going to admit that this is a team that just because they go ahead and free themselves of Watson and have a good enough quarterback in Davis Mills from last season back under center, they haven't proved. I mean, at most, the win-loss total by Vegas odds is still 4.5. I think that's a very fair number. I think that 
at most, they're about a six-win team, and that's if Mills continues to develop the way that he is and the rookie class does come in and immediately impact this team. But again, I think that Lovey Smith is a good coach when it comes to player personnel. Players enjoy playing for him. Uh, there's a sense of urgency on the defensive side of the football this year, at least in training camp. And those are all signs of progression, but there's still a lot of question marks and future concerns for when they're actually going to be a viable contender. But at least we now know that there's a sense of purpose and somewhat of a light at the end of the tunnel with Casario going into year two. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think getting moving on from the Watts situation was good for everybody's sanity far less anything else. I think obviously that still got a lot to play out in terms of what we find that actual suspension is. Um, obviously, we've just come through many camp and OTAs. Cole, you were out there for a lot of it. Um, first of all, what's the dynamic like this year where you've got like, you know, there's there's a number of your colleagues from other you know news outlets who have left, have not been replaced um, and I had, you know, I've had a couple of conversations about that for the reasons why I won't speculate necessarily on that in terms of some of the environment that's put out there in sort of digital landscape. But like the, what what was that like? And is that noticeable just when you, you know, when and the media availability and just kind of less people there? Is that is that something you noticed in terms of that dynamic? To an extent, I mean, you know, change comes at all times, you know, especially in this industry. But, you know, I guess it's a loss for one, but a win for me because it gives me more questions to ask and gets me a little bit more better acquainted with the players, especially the younger players like Jalen Petrie and Christian Harris and Kenyon Green, who are expected to be franchise cornerstones going into year two of the Casario era. So, it is a different dynamic. Uh, you know, you do see less people, but it does allow you to have more opportunities to build a connection with these players. And ultimately, the better connection you can build with these players, the more trust that they can get in you and the more, you know, that you can actually know what they are about. You can get better questions. You can get better quotes. And probably the best thing of all is you can get more stories and a better sense and a better quality piece that you write every single week that draws the attention to the reader and it makes you want to keep coming back for more, which again, it, it, by the time training camp comes, I can already tell you that there has been replacements made at the Chronicle. There have been replacements made at ESPN. There have been uh, conversations of a few more, uh, you know, few more uh, media outlets coming on this year. So it's going to be at least somewhat of a different feel because it's new faces, but the same organizations are still going to be there. The same questions are still going to be asked. The same people that you expect to have the hard hitting evidence are still going to be coming with them. I'm myself included, not going to back down on asking difficult questions to players. And that's kind of the norm. And especially when you are going into a second phase where you're trying to figure out the direction and purpose of an organization. And that's really where the Texans are right now is finding its identity, finding its rhythm, finding what path they're going into with Lovey Smith, with this young core, with these foundational pieces in place and with a young rookie class that has been highly praised by multiple media outlets for the way that they drafted and also the way that they made trades for their focal players, which is a massive deal for Nick Casario because he said going into the entire draft process, we have 11 picks, don't expect us to finish with 11 picks, and he didn't. And a lot of the trades that he made were trades back to get picks later on to trade forward to get his players. And when they're his players, it's his team built in his image, which is exactly what the Texans want going into year two. Yeah, no, I think so. And I think hopefully this kind of new transition to this era of a bit more professionalism kind of in some way, you know, kind of bridges that gap, I think, between there's definitely in that kind of 
interesting relationships, I would say, with some kind of sections of the fan base and the media and that kind of all perception of media. And, and that's only an output of just how terrible things have been right for the last couple of years. And it's been, you know, when there's not a lot of good to report about it, it makes it difficult. But it certainly feels like, you know, it's taken a step forward. Obviously, that will you know, be determined wholly by game time comes. But when you were out there at minicamp and OTAs, was there anybody caught your eye that you didn't expect? Was there anybody that you thought, OK, keep an eye on that guy this year? I thought the one that was really intriguing was Christian Harris at linebacker. He still is developing into a linebacker. When he was uh, getting recruited by Alabama and by Michigan and by Georgia, they actually looked at him as a safety. And he was one of the top safeties in the state of Louisiana. I think he graded out in 24-7 sports as the number four overall defensive player and the number two safety prospect class. But when he got to Tuscaloosa, Nick Saban said, we want to play you as our space linebacker. And so he is still learning the position as, you know, on the fly. He's put up back-to-back years of 70 plus tackles as the number two linebacker for the, uh, for the Alabama Crimson Tide. But he's come into Houston and he's actually seen a lot of first team reps. Now, partially that's due to Kamu Gruje Hill missing time due to the um, off-season shoulder surgery that he had. But He's worked both at Mike and I mean, both at Will and Sam linebacker with the first team unit. Garrett Wallow is another name that has really stepped up. And Nick Casario actually gave a lot of praise to Garrett during the offseason, saying that he has been the most improved defensive player. And for good reason why there's been opportunities for him in the last two years. You know, last season against the Indianapolis Colts, he actually finished with a team high in tackles with, I believe, 11, if I wasn't mistaken. So, you know, he's made the strides necessary. Jackson. Jaguars, my bad, but he's made the strides necessary to take that next step as a fifth round linebacker to maybe even fight his way into a situational starting role. And uh, Jalen Petrie, the safety out of Baylor, is the name that I think most people have heard because of his ability to play in coverage. But I was very intrigued because of when Matt Rule left Baylor, they switched the defensive formation underneath Dave Aranda and they actually played him as more of a star linebacker position. So he actually was more so playing in a zone-based nickel, big nickel type role and was not playing on the back end. But throughout the entire pre-draft process, uh, when he was down in Mobile working with the New York Jets, they actually played him in a zone-heavy two-safety set backfield. So it was uh, basically a cover four set. And he made a lot of plays on the ball. And and since coming to Houston, he's had that same knack. Uh, He's looked to be the best safety uh, safety of anyone in the bunch. He's gotten first team reps. And I I actually do believe that he is going to be one of the only players from this draft class right now that you can pencil in as a week one starter because of how much he has come out. He's balled. He has showed uh, progression. And, you know, Lovey Smith has said that there have been very few players who have made such an impactful role this early on in OTAs and in training camp in his career than what Jalen Petrie has done. So I would expect him to really find out where he fits, whether that be at free safety or strong safety next year. But I would expect him to be a starter at this point. And through OTAs right now, you know, he has clearly looked to be the number one rookie in this uh, in this class. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you're talking about is it free or strong? And obviously, like, you know, there's certain observations you can and can't put out from what you do see. Um, unless you unless you want a quick email from the PR department, but I think the the um, 
if he can play free safety, I, I think, you know, he could be the potential to be, you know, something, you know, more than anybody could have ever hoped for or evaluated or projected um, at the top of the second round. I think when you watch his tape in college at Baylor, as you said, he just does so much that though it's quite rare because he was so much put on his plate in that defence. So, yeah, no, it's good to hear that certainly, you know, even without the first kind of couple of guys, that there is uh, there is potentially value in starter and, and quality contributions potentially coming this way. Uh, this year. Um, I think what's interesting that that we haven't really brought up is he's also Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year as a defensive back. You don't usually see that. You see that happen with pass rushers and you see that happen with linebackers getting 185 tackles. And this is a guy that led the Big 12 in tackles for losses and he's a reliable tackler. And that's something that Lovey Smith has preached from the get-go. If you are going to play defense, you have got to tackle. And that was a missing element last year, I think, in the secondary. So, uh, you know, I actually had a first-round grade on him. I thought that everything on his tape screamed that he was a Buddha Baker type clone. And if you could have a Buddha Baker type, and that's actually a player that he looked after Another one was Tyron Matthew. Uh, these kind of slot defenders that can play safety on the back end, but also come down in the box and go up against man coverage against slot receivers and tight ends. That's going to be his role. So I, I think that it's really interesting to see how the dynamics of the NFL is changing to where you're adding in these role players who are safeties, but they really are a bit of a, bit of a linebacker slash cornerback type because of they have to hit, they have to tackle, and they have to be able to play in coverage. And so far, you know, that's been the biggest adjustment for Petrie and he hasn't missed a beat. And if he can do that, imagine him with a full 17 game season where he's just improving every single week. Like there's an opportunity for him to be better than Buda Baker very early on in his career. There's an opportunity for him to be considered one of the better slot defenders and maybe even young safeties on the rise by year two. Yeah, and I think you, we've seen that trend probably for the last three or four years, that positionless defence. I think mm-hmm. without, your, without your front guys, you've got to have people that can play multiple roles to disguise what you're doing and and, uh, and keep quarterbacks guessing, I think, when they're trying to uh, diagnose the coverage, I think. In terms of kind of some of the changes and what we expect to the defence and you know what we maybe expect with the offence, obviously be a fullback this year. I think that's that's definitely you know, a, a definitive that we've heard from the club. But it's 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 early days yet, but was, was there anything you noticed you thought was, you know, massively different to last year in terms of the way this team set up to defend uh, and an attack. I think that you're going to see a lot more 12 personnel run this year. You know, uh, last season Houston was, I think the number one team when it came to 13 personnel with three tight ends on the field. Yeah. Yeah, So I I do think that you'll see that same trend. You know, the one thing that Tim Benovich, the new tight ends coach said that when he was working with Pep Hamilton in Indianapolis, when he was the offense coordinator was they were a tight end friendly unit and they wanted to get the tight ends involved in the passing attack. They wanted to get the tight ends involved in the rushing attack. And and, and when you kind of look at the situation that you have in Houston, you have kind of that similar format that you had with Andrew Luck. Colby Flinger was really more of a flex tight end. You have that in Brevin Jordan. You had your inline blocker in Jack Doyle. You kind of have that with Farrell Brown. I think that with Tegan Kirantano from Oregon State, the uh, fifth round pick, The hope is that he will at least become a very well-rounded blocker. And one of the players that he modeled his game after was George Kittle, who, when he was in college at Iowa, really was known for his blocking demeanor and not his, you know, catch radius. So potentially you could see that, but they're going to run the football. They're going to run the football. And even though that they finished dead last in rushing, you know, a season ago, that is what Pep Hamilton wants to do. And that has kind of been the case. You're watching the offense line up in 12 personnel to where they added an extra blocker. You're watching the offense play downhill. You're watching the team uh, have a lot more power rushing formations this year than they did last year. So 
that doesn't to say that they are going to pass the ball because they clearly need to, when you have Brandon cooks and you're hoping that Nico Collins, who really has stepped up this past off season, working with Mills and the potential of John Mechie in the slot, plus, you know, other guys like Chris Moore and Chris Conley that could at least add some value to the roster. They're going to pass the football, but this is going to be a very run heavy formation and it's going to be a very tight end friendly formation. I would not be shocked to see Brevin Jordan lead the team in touchdowns, especially red zone touchdowns. Like that is exactly the type of offense that Pep wants to run. And that probably is, you know, kind of a case of why they brought him in was they realized that they needed to get better on the ground game. They need to get better up front with pass protection and run blocking. So adding in a guy like Hamilton that likes to run a lot of run heavy formation power, you know, power moves up the middle, uh, that style of offense, that's going to be something that I think pushes guys like offensive linemen in AJ Cant and Kenyon Green to be better. And it's going to push Titus Howard to fight for a new contract extension. And it's going to push these guys to overall improve because if not, Houston comes in next season with over $45 million in cap space that that way they can go out and spend a little bit on the offensive line. And then a year later, they have the league's highest cap space at $182.1 million. So in the next two years, if the offensive line is not improving, but Pep is getting the most out of Davis Mills, he's getting the most out of the tight ends, he's getting something out of the run game, he's not going to be in jeopardy of losing his job, but AJ Can is and, and Justin Britt is and potentially, you know, Laramie Tunsil could be traded and they get the first round pick that they use on an offensive tackle. There's going to be moves made in the, in the current, you know, future of the organization and what happens next. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that that's going to be the acid test. I think this year, if we're going to see genuine improvements is, is can they run the ball on the ground? Can they move it? Can they get the hard yards and sustain drives and take the pressure off the passing game? Because last year there was there was far too much pressure, imbalance, became predictable at times and um, you know there was a lot of repetition of the kind of similar plays that just had different uh, looks that, that Tim Kelly used to run. So hopefully the power running game can suit them. I think the question for Miko is does Larry want to play that, you know, is because he's not a great run blocker, is Titus Howard actually you know better as a zone guy just because he is a bit more athletic for his size so that's the question but I think the, the one guy we need to talk about is Kenyon Green you touched on him there um, first of all did you think that his tape in college warranted that selection spot that early in the first did I think that early in the first no did I think he was a yeah. first round talent yes I did uh, I think the biggest thing is that when you look between him and Zion Johnson out of Boston College they each counteracted each other. So if you wanted a plug and play pass protector for a pass heavy offense, Zion Johnson was the pick you want to go with. But if you're trying to improve your run game, you're trying to become a better run blocker, then Kenyon Green was the right pick because Green has over, I think, 3,000 snaps, uh, uh, over 1,000 snaps in run blocking at Texas A&M during his three years. And A&M was one of the more efficient teams running the football in the SEC for the last two seasons with both Isaiah Spiller and Devon A-Chain. Spiller averaged about 5.5 yards per carry. And A-Chain led the SEC last year at seven yards per rush attempt, uh, which was over a full yard more than Jaquez Hunter of Auburn. So, they had a really good power run formation at Texas A&M. And in large part, uh, Green was part of that solution. So do I think that you could have traded back a little bit more, maybe gotten an extra third round pick, maybe even gotten an extra sec, maybe even gotten a second round pick, and you would have still had Green available? Absolutely. But when you look at the value of what you traded back from 13 to 15 to allow Philadelphia to move up and get the selections that you did, According to ESPN FPI rankings, that was worth the second round uh, second round grade value. So 
it's you're getting your guy and still getting enough picks that eventually were transitioned and used uh, to move up and get Damian Pierce. They were used to move up and get um, Tegan Kirantano. So they were utilized properly to where you got your players. But again, it, like first round talent without question, but uh, top 15 selection, that's kind of the hesitant part, but you kind of take the grade with the pick and the trade plus the selection and it averages out to be probably about a B. Yeah, I think because he'll always be compared to Jordan Davis and Kyle Hamilton, which in in all likelihood, you think one of them is going to turn out to be a star because they were in a lot of people's top 10 kind of players or there or thereabouts, at least top 15. So to to pass on them, to take a guard is is a bold move. Um, So what do you think his... You know, what do you think what do you think his profile and how does that lend itself towards his power running scheme and what do you kind of expect? Do you expect him to clear out Max Sharp in day one, start day one and, and just be a stalwart there? Or what's your kind of expectations for Kenny? Because he's not played much in OTAs. You've probably not seen him out there. He's been injured to this point. I would hope that he is the starting offensive guard because plain and simple, Max Sharping's not getting the job done. And they brought in AJ Can to basically replace what you're losing on the right side of the offensive line, but that doesn't really solve your big issue on the left side, which is where Green, I think, is going to fit in long-term next to Laramie Tunsil. I think the biggest question mark with a guy like Green is where is his profile fit? You know, some people still are viewing him as an offensive tackle. Some people view him as a guard. I personally view him as a guard with tackle range. Um, He reminds me a lot of Elton Jenkins of the Green Bay Packers, a guy who can probably play tackle in a pinch, but you want him inside because of his run blocking ability. And I think that's the main selling point is that they need to get better in the trenches. They need to get better on the ground game. They need to be able to have a player who has multiple starting experience against really premier pass rushers that will work inside, especially in that B gap role. And that's where he's done a good job. But you know, there's a lot of questions right now. And for an organization that still is going through a retooling, rebuilding, whatever the heck you want to call it, Casario is not going to rush anybody. And that's kind of been the stalemate for Derek Stingley comps. There's been kind of the stalemate for any single player that has been really adapting. John Mechie's like the biggest thing that people keep bringing up in conversation. When is he going to start? If he's not ready to go week one, they're not going to play him. If he's not ready to go week seven, they're not going to play him. These are long-term investments that they believe in for the future. And that's kind of where you're sitting right now for the likes of Houston is they brought in these names because of they believe that they're going to be part of the foundational spots. So if he's struggling with pass pro, then Kenyon Green's not going to start week one. He's going to start hopefully by week eight, week nine. If he is dominant in all of preseason and he's improving as a pass protector and as a run blocker in training camp, then yeah, he is going to be the starter. But there's a lot of question marks for a guy that we have very little know about right now because if he was out for all of OTAs and, and you know, those are things that maybe aren't that big of a deal. And then when you get pads on, you can see the level of expectation of where he kind of fits. But it's very hard to pinpoint, say, will he be a starter week one until further notice? So the goal is, I think, to get him to start. But the expectation is if he can be the starter by midseason and replace Max Sharping, you know, when the team is trying to figure out what happens next, who are some players that we're looking to extend, who are some players that we're looking to uh, cut after this year, who are some names that we think can be part of the long term. That's the ultimate goal, I think, for Ted, for Houston is just get him on the field by midseason to see where he needs to improve and where he has improved from the start of training camp to now. And, you know, I think when I when I go back to the games I watched, I saw, you know, if you look at his LSU tape, there's some ropey moments in pass coverage, but then his pass, um, his pass sets, some, but some but some, um, but some good ones and good play recognition. There's some elite traits in there and you can see why he was such a big time prospect. What do you think Kenyon needs to get better at? 
um, to, to round off his game because obviously these guys have got a huge jump particularly in the old line they've got to build chemistry but ultimately they've got to get the pad level right the technique they've got to get the kick step everything they've got to get the alignments there's so much to learn all very quickly in the blink of an eye what do you think he has to get better at to, to, to be reliable you know even if it is mid-season like you said to me, it's pad level. Like that was the biggest thing I noticed when he was at Texas A&M was he would always play high. And the good news was, is that he had really good footwork to make up for it at times, especially yeah. in yeah. run blocking. But his pad level would always be feeling like he was lurching. He was leaping, like he was leaping. He was trying to go ahead and just kind of extend plays when he didn't really have to. He could wait for the blow to come to him, catch himself, and then fight off that way. But there's been times where it's worked. I mean, when he played against Will Anderson out of Alabama, he did not allow a single pressure against uh, Zach Calzada. He did not allow a single sack. And that was the guy that many people said should have won the Heisman Trophy last year. So when you limit a guy like that's production, I mean, you're doing something right. But pad level is probably number one. Uh, lunging is probably another thing. The other thing that I'm, I've always noticed about like these kind of hybrid players when it comes to guard slash tackles is the penalty counts, you know, because of a lot of times you get away with it when playing on the edge, you rarely get away with it uh, on holding calls, especially up the middle. Uh, Connor Williams is a really good example coming out of Texas. You know, he was slated by many to be a really stable offensive lineman and he's led the Dallas Cowboys in penalties all four years that he was there. So, I mean, like he's improved as a pass protector, but there's still the knack of, hey, we have a lot of flaws when it comes to our pass protection set because of you're giving up uh, 12 to 13 penalties a season. So those are drives that end with, you know, that end with plays that are supposed to be going for 15 yards downfield or 15 yards coming back. I think that's going to be something to watch for. But pad level is the number one thing I worry about with Kenyon Green. I think that he has got to get better with his overall shoulders, his hand placement is decent. But again, when you reach up here and higher up on the shoulder blade, it allows it to become easier for a defensive lineman to swat and swim and work up field. And if your footwork and your speed isn't matched on the same level, you're not going to be able to recover in time. Yeah, no, I think so. Yeah, he's, it's. Uh, I think you know, there's a chance for him to start. You just got to hope the injury uh, issues clear up. And and for God's sake, please keep him at one position and don't and don't move him around. Oh, yeah. We've had enough of that. It's hard. You know, if he's no, like, I think God, he's look. had enough of that too, man. I mean, like like the, like the <laughs> dude played four different spots at Texas A&M yeah, last year, yeah. and he found success at all. But it's just like it was hard for scout. Like, and part of the reason I think scouts are saying, oh well, he could be a swing tackle option is because well, he played tackle in college, and it's like mm. well. He was an all-American guard. How about we keep the all-American guard at a guard position? Let's just do that and let's see how it works out before we go ahead and make some changes. Well, that was it because I remember the the previous year when we signed uh, McCollum and the uh, is it Ryan Green or the, the guy? We it was uh, it was Carson Green. Carson Green, yeah, I remember going to watch them then, and I thought, yeah, Kenyon Green is the best player on that line. He's meant to be the big pick. So it's funny how your perception changes in a year when the focus is on for your team going to pick them in a little bit. But um, Cole, what's your what's your kind of expectations for this team this year? What's have you got a kind of uh, storyline? You think I suppose it's probably Davis, isn't it? In terms of you know what changes for this team, but uh, have you got you know something you think that we've got to pay attention to, or what you're looking forward to about this season as well? I think chemistry is the biggest thing because again, you know, Mills shined last year in his final five starts. I think that everyone out there would admit that with the personnel that he was working with, with the offensive line that he had, with the play design by Tim Kelly, he was the best rookie quarterback down the stretch. I don't think anybody is going to argue that when you finish with a 104.5 passer rating and a nine to two touchdown interception ratio with a completion percentage of near 70% and getting two, two big wins, one of which was against the Los Angeles Chargers that ultimately kept them out of the playoffs, but 
this is a third round pick. I, I mean, this is a third round pick who we barely saw play in college. He had 11 games and was during a COVID-19 year, very limited. So there's a lot that is still unknown about him. And it's a very good, it's a very good draft class to get a quarterback next year. So he's going to be underneath the microscope. He's going to be underneath the scrutiny because when you can get an opportunity with two first round picks to land a guy like CJ Stroud, who some are saying is the best quarterback prospect, not named Trevor Lawrence in the last five years. And then Bryce Young coming off of a Heisman trophy season and other names like Will Levis and Tyler Van Dyke and even Hedden Hooker and KJ Jefferson and all these other, you know, smaller school players that at least maybe give you that same potential, what you have with the likes of Davis Mills, they're going to be under the scrutiny. So it's the chemistry with Brandon cooks. It's how he builds a repertoire with Nico Collins. It's will John Mechie come back and will they be a one, two combination? You know, the trend is as of late, you know, draft a wide receiver from a college or a quarterback from a college and get their counterpart the season later. So, you know, you add in Mechie, does that mean Bryce Young is in the waiting wings for Houston? I don't think anybody should expect Mills to be the savior and bring this team to a nine, 10 win season, but if he gets six wins and if he's able to throw for say 3,200 passing yards and a touchdown to interception ratio of 25 to eight to 25, you know, 27 to nine, is that enough for Casario to say, we think that even though we're picking in the top three, you were not the problem. And that's kind of where you have to dissect this Texans organization is, is Mills improving with his decision-making? Is he improving with his vision? Is he improving with his accuracy, with his timing, with the mental aspect of reps? Are those things that are happening on the field translating to his production? And is that going to make him at least a viable candidate for at least another season? Because keep in mind, if Houston finds enough success with Mills and they realize we still need to get a better pass rush, we still need to fix our secondary, we still need to fix our offensive line, they could pass on a quarterback in next year's draft or draft a guy, say, in round three or round four, like a Devin Leary or uh, maybe a, um, a Hendon Hooker out of Tennessee. And then a year from now, be in line to draft Caleb Williams or Quinn Ewers from Texas and USC, respectively. And those are two quarterbacks that I think a lot of people are hyping up as well for good reason and good morals. Plus, you have no idea if anyone's going to get injured this year. Could like a CJ Stroud suffer a torn ACL very early on, knock on wood, but then come back in 2024. And then you realize, okay, we can wait another season and then have a roster ready to contend right away when he arrives. So there's a lot of moving parts when it comes to that, but you're only as strong as your quarterback. I think that's given in the, in the likes of the NFL as of now. And the AFC is loaded at quarterback. I, I mean, Mills arguably is still the worst quarterback in the AFC. And that's saying something because of he had a really good season last year. But, you know, you can make the argument that Mac Jones is bottom five. You can make an argument that two is bottom five, even though he has a winning record. Zach Wilson's bottom five. Trevor Lawrence is bottom five. And it's not that they're bad quarterbacks. It's that look at the quarterbacks ahead of them and Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes and, um, Justin Herbert and Joe Burrow and Lamar Jackson and Deshaun Watson and Eric Carr and all these other names. If you're not in the top seven of your quarterback class, you're always looking to upgrade. And that is going to be something that Houston is going to consider. So it is a Davis Mills storyline this year. Uh, I think that at best, this is a seven win team. I think that you're probably looking at them more so at picking, you know, picking with five wins. I, I, I would set the over under at five in my personal opinion. But I also will say if Mills can do what he did last year, Houston's not going to get the number one pick. And I think that that's kind of like a slap in the face to fans because fans want that number one pick, but they also want to see Mills Mafia actually explode. So there's kind of that common ground. Where do you fit with this? And that 
is really where, you know, I think the storyline goes this year for Houston. Is Mills yeah. the future? Well, that's it. And I think when you look at the context, even this year, although it's been proved, okay, is the, is the run game better? That's the big question. Year one of a new scheme, uh, going into a new head coach, uh, only one proven passing option out there for him, really, in, in, in NFL terms. So it's going to be challenging. You just don't want to get caught in no man's land of being you know, a certified guy that's at the top of the order. You're just slightly out of reach. But we do have the two picks to potentially flex. Um, so there's a lot to be decided, as you said. But Cole, final question for you this week. In terms of what you look forward to the season, is there one thing? Is there a road trip? Is there something that that uh, that uh, that you're looking forward to the most? Or is it just to be about football and back at football again? I'm going to be keeping a close eye on the Deshaun Watson situation because of if we've seen anything, you know, the way that the suspensions go, his first game active could very well be a return to Houston on December 4th when the Cleveland Browns come to town. That's going to be the one that I'm going to be paying close attention to. Uh, I'm also going to be watching their games against Tennessee and Indianapolis. I think that a lot of people are hyping up Indianapolis as this really rebounding team. And there's still question marks with Matt Ryan. There's still question marks with Ryan Tannehill. Could they find a way to maybe sneak a win in there, get an upset and finish once again, three and three in the division. And what's going to be the overall play with Doug Peterson and uh, Trevor Lawrence in their connection in year two uh, for him, you know, the Urban Meyer situation was a cluster mess by all means. And I don't think that anybody would deny at this point, uh, if buyers remorse had come back, they would have gone in a whole different direction and just to see what they had with Lawrence and see if he is really living up to standards. So I think that's going to be something to keep a close eye on, especially now they spent money in free agency this off season. Could you see Houston at least maybe go three and three and those divisional games, you know, there are questions, you know, last year they did win both games against Jacksonville. They did get an upset over Tennessee and they almost got a second one. You know, if, if you were to give Mills, maybe two more drives, are we talking about Houston finishing the year off with five wins last year? And if they have five wins, do you keep David Culley and do you have these teams? And I think those are questions that you kind of want to see moving forward with Houston is where do they sit in the pecking order in their own division? Yeah, no, I think so. I think so. Well, Cole, um, thank you very much for your time. Uh, great, great to join us again. Uh, hopefully try and speak to you throughout the season. There's going to be a lot to be decided. Um, it, they keep it interesting at the very least. But uh, Cole, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks for having me.